Welcome to the Responsible Entrepreneur Institute's podcast. We call this segment The Responsible Entrepreneur. It's where we move beyond doing less bad, but we don't stop at doing good. I teach you how to make profound and beneficial change in an industry, a social system, a cultural belief system, and governance itself. My name is Carol Sanford. I am your host. I am also a business and development coach for Fortune 500 companies and rock star entrepreneurs, as well as the author of The Responsible Business and The Responsible Entrepreneur for Game-Changing Archetypes for Founders, Leaders, and Impact Investors. This podcast is focused on how to shift the immovable force. You know, I'm often asked, what do you do with all those people and companies who really don't want to change? Now, there are many answers to that question, but let's talk about one of them today. Our tendency is to try and show people, sometimes in a very loud way, what we think they can't see, but we can. It becomes a debate based on advocacy and refutation and defense. In my work with game-changing entrepreneurs, and in fact, whether they're inside or outside a company, there is a real difference in how you need to approach things if you want something very difficult to change. Today's example is how to involve them in research or engagement in a way that they actually find their own advice, and we don't give it to them. It's much more like a Socratic engagement where you hold softly the answers you have because they may find something even better than you have. It's where you engage them so that they can find and discover what it may be that really works for them. It gets you completely out of the defense. So how do you do that? Well, over the years, I've found that offering a systemic framework and I'll give you an example in a second. It becomes the foundation for critical thinking skills and the base for asking questions which allow them to discover. In the process, then, they find a more complete answer. For example, with Colgate-Palmolive in South Africa, I drew a framework made up of three concentric rings on a board. Frameworks are always visual. And I asked them to label them using the following categories. The inner ring was really them doing work what difference they're trying to make, meeting their customers, getting things out the door every day. Secondly, were those who had a stake in their success, everything from investors to the community to people who had jobs there and the suppliers who they depended on. The outer ring and the largest, which is true in life also, is the effect that they could have on something bigger than themselves. Here, we put the new South Africa because that's where things were really, where things had the real potential to really move. In this case, it led all of the people who were internal to the company committing to do things that would really affect the townships and the leadership and the future of the country. So for example, we were able to build economic development by building women as salespeople and mostly as educators for oral health, particularly among the children. As a result of those three concentric rings and me merely asking the questions about what was possible there, what else they could take on, how could it make a difference, what did that ring need, they were able to invent their own path out. Now, there is one caveat I must offer here. You really are doing it through improving the business while you make that difference. So it's not trading off the business. Today, I will be interviewing Sarah Slaughter, who has created a very smart way to engage people in finding their own answers and in moving in much bigger ways than even she thought possible. Tell us about you and your businesses. Okay, so um, 
I was born in Washington, D.C. in the 1960s, which was a very exciting time to be living in the nation's capital. Um, there were a lot of social actions, social movements that were happening at that point. We lived in the city um, proper. So my dad uh, had been in the Air Force and at that point was working for the federal government. Uh, he had grown up as an Army brat. His dad was in the Army and his brothers were in the Army as well, had fought in the first uh, front lines of the World War II. And so um, that side of my family was very much focused on service. My mom's side of the family was also very focused on service. One of her brothers was a priest and her sister was a nun, a medical missionary sister. Uh, who worked in India. So the focus was really on, you know, what is it that you do to make the world better? So um, my dad started working for the United Nations. We moved up to New York. Um, and again, everybody, it was a very international community, and it kind of confirmed my knowledge that Americans are just this little teeny, tiny part of the world. And when I went to college, I went to MIT, and my uncle, who was a priest and had left the priesthood at that point and, and um, married a woman who had been a nun, she left the um, services, the um, orders as well. And I remember sitting there and, and visiting with them, and they said, so you're at MIT? And I said, yes. And they said, so what are you going to do to make the world better? <laughs> and I thought, well, that's a good question. I think it was a freshman. And uh, so it was, a, it was a good set of questions. So um, in terms of businesses, I uh, got my bachelor's degree from MIT with a degree in civil engineering and anthropology because I figured you couldn't actually figure out what kind of civil infrastructure anybody needed if you didn't know what the society needed. And it was fun. My family used to joke that I was going to get a job building old, old Roman ruins. Because <laughs> who would want a civil engineer that actually cared about society? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and um, ended up working for a company after that that did um, transportation and economics analysis. And so it was this nice combination. So then I went back to MIT and got my master's and my doctorate. And um, my master's was civil engineering and political science. And my doctorate was civil engineering and management science. So I have a joint doctorate in the two areas. And, of course, that meant I was completely unemployable when I got my doctorate and um, interviewed in a number of places for uh, faculty positions in management science, including Harvard and University of British Columbia and another, a number of other places. And they would look at me and they would say, Sarah, you are not a regular management graduate. And I said, yeah, I know. That's kind of who I am. And then I would interview at the civil engineering departments, and they would look at me and they'd say, Sarah, you are not a traditional civil engineer. So I ended up at Lehigh University. My um, thesis and dissertation supervisor managed to get a spot that opened up in the civil engineering department. And I interviewed for that one at the same time, and so was offered the spot as a professor of civil engineering at MIT. So I moved up to MIT, um, which was, you know, nice to be back home and to be someplace where actually people read newspapers and talked about politics and current events. One of the things that um, that happened right in that transition as I was getting ready to leave Lehigh and join MIT is I won a big national uh, research award. It's called the Career Award for Breakthrough Research. And so I took that with me to MIT. I started up MOCA Systems in 99 and 
And six months later, the German company got bought by this huge um, mega company in Europe. And so they weren't interested anymore. But I thought, you know, I really want to see this happen. So started up, um, we raised funding and hired our first employees in April, first, second of April in 2000. And I took a leave of absence from MIT. And six months into my leave of absence, I went back and told my chairman I quit and I was never coming back to MIT. So my specialty is innovations. And people would always say to me, um, that's a great idea, Sarah. You know, it's a new material or it's a new process or it's a new system. And yes, it could save money. It could save lives. It could be much faster. But our jobs are too complicated. We'll do it later when jobs are simple. And the jobs are never simple. So I thought, well, wait a minute. We could come up with a simulation model where you could build the whole thing in the computer in detail and be able to figure out the best way of doing it. And that was my proposal to the National Science Foundation that won me the career award. So, Was this also the project where you ended up engaging with like steel beam workers and others in having them be willing to take these things on, or was that a later project? No, that was that same project. Why don't you talk about that? Because that story to me is really exciting. Yeah, so so when I was at Lehigh University, there was a lot of steel, um, you know, fabricators and erectors that were involved in the research that we were doing and the International Iron Workers Union. And, you know, we had a, a, the ATLAS team, which is the Center for the Advanced Technology for Large Structural Systems at Lehigh University, had come up with a, a connection between a beam and a column that didn't require bolts. So what you could do is you could just swing it into location and pull it down and it would, it would settle it in. <coughs> and um, it means that you don't have to have the iron workers up there when the beam swings in because sometimes they get hit. And you also didn't have to have them walking out on the beam to loosen it and um, to loose it from the crane. The president of the Iron Workers Union stood up at this big meeting where I was presenting some of the results, and he pounded on the table and he said, "God damn it, you know, I've I've done high steel, and I've done hot metal, which is using hot rivets mm-hmm. back in the in the early days." And he said, "God damn it, Sarah's the only person who ever understood what it is we actually do." Wow. Um, so it was, it was a, uh, it was a nice confirmation of the stuff that we were doing and how we were going about doing it. Um, so when we started up the company, one of the things as we were doing this research, we would, when I would send my students to the construction sites, I would say to them, "Look, you know absolutely nothing about this trade. You are working with plumbers; they really know what they're doing. You will be respectful." I don't care if you're an MIT PhD student, you don't know anything at all about plumbing. So my students would appear on the site and, you know, the plumbers would kind of back off the them and they would say, you know, I don't know, I don't know if I really want these MIT students around. And the students were always really respectful. And then what I found out through the grapevine is that the, um, the plumbers and all the skilled workers would go back and they would brag and they would be like, I taught those MIT students a thing or two. <laughs> I love it. And we would always send the results back to them and say, okay, this is where we're modeling it. Does this look okay? Does this look right? And they would give us ideas and, and comments and suggestions back. It was, it was really marvelous. So <clears throat> the reason, <clears throat> so there was the German company that was interested, but a lot of the contractors that we had been working with, the specialty contractors like the plumber and the electricians and the steel workers, as well as the general contractors were saying, Sarah, we could really use your model. We have to figure out how to do this stuff better. 
And so when we started up the company, that was really the thought was that, you know, this was a way of, of taking a lot of the guesswork out of the system. One of the things you said you heard as a kid from your family is, what are you going to do that makes any difference? Now, I can see through all of this career thing that you did that made a difference, but some people would say, well, she just did a civil engineering project and, you know, it led to a business. Well, one of the things that, that struck me is that there is so much um, embodied knowledge and experience in all of these skilled workers, and they really know what they're doing, and they also have great ideas on how to make things better. So my particular take on, on innovations is actually user innovations. And my dissertation was actually on the types of innovations that carpenters came up with in order to use these um, solid core stress skin panels for working on things. And so my take on it is if we could only tap into that knowledge and expertise and give them something that really accelerates it, they're able to do the improvements that they know will make a difference and will save lives. Like the iron workers knowing that they will actually be able to go home at the end of the day and not be dead or not be hurt. Um, but the other thing was that as I started looking across a lot of the industry, our back of the envelope calculation was that about 30% of the funding being used for construction projects was actually wasted. And it wasn't that you know people were throwing it by the side of the roads or bribery. It was just friction in the system. It was things that came late, so there was rework, there was miscommunications, there was you know somebody saying, well, I didn't know that that was going to be so big. So the idea of being able to increase the efficiency and the effectiveness of the planning process could lower that wastage. And if we had 30% more money, think about the hospitals and the schools and the housing and everything else that we would be able to build. So you know, being able to, to tap into that that knowledge and that expertise and being able to be much more effective in our use of resources was really the reason that, that I wanted to do it. And that was why my students really joined me both in the research. And then when I started up the company, all of my students were given stock in the company and many of them ended up working at the company itself. The opportunity to really make a difference in how construction projects were actually um, managed and delivered was something that really inspired a lot of the students. And then when we got to the point of actually being able to create a company and take that into, out into the world and make a real difference, for a lot of the students, they were just thrilled. They were saying, you know, everybody else I know did their thesis and it just sits on a shelf. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've got a chance to go out and see what it matters in the real world. So tell you us know? about a project. I think uh, it helps to understand what you mean when you say a project and what happened as a result of that project. So there was a company that was setting up a high-tech manufacturing facility in Ho Chi Minh City in Vietnam. Mm. And this was their first venture. It was actually, it was in 07 or 08. So it was just when Vietnam was opening up for uh, international investment by companies. And so what they were interested in from the students was what is it that they should be paying attention to? in terms of critical sustainability issues um, in that region. And one of the things that came up that the students found was that only about 15% of the population had access to treated water. Everybody else would just scoop it out of the rivers. Mm. And so you had problems with bacterial contamination and all the rest of it. Even a smaller percentage, and I, I think it was somewhere around 8 to 10%, 
had access to sanitary systems. So people would have outhouses or they would just kind of use whatever was available. And so when we talked to this manufacturing company, they said, well, that's not our problem. And I said, hold on a sec. You guys have ultra-pure water inside your manufacturing facility. If there's a typhoon and diphtheria and cholera start to spread around the community and you've got water inside your plant and people are dying, if you leave your gates closed, when they recover, you will never be here again. I said, or, you know, if this happens and you open up your gates, you'll have to shut down production. And they looked at me and they're saying, I don't think we like either one of those options. <laughs> and I said, you don't have to. I said, you have all of these specialists that are coming and helping you set up your water treatment system in your manufacturing plant. If you make them available to that community, then they can figure out what it is they need to do to add more and more water and sewer services to everybody in the whole city. When I listen to you, I'm always very aware of a couple of things. But one is... You don't walk in, and it's clear in the degrees you have and the way you studied, you don't walk in and work on a piece of something. You walk in and you look at the whole of a place, how it fits together. You look at it economically. You look at it climate-wise. Particularly now, you've become very much an expert on thinking about climate resiliency and how it is. Uh, and I know you're even doing this in uh, a variety of places with government, with cities, with communities. When you enter a place, how do you get into your mind what the whole is that you're working on and how those uh, different threads fit together, economic? And you may have to, it would probably be helpful either to go more detail on the Finger Lakes example or some other example. Well, I think that um, one of the easiest ways that I found to think about the whole is actually to talk to people who are there. You know, kind of going back to my students doing the time and motion studies on the site, mm -hmm. you know, I as an outsider can't tell a plumber how they ought to be thinking about plumbing systems. Mm -hmm. But we can ask them how they think about plumbing systems and get them to then talk to the electricians and then get both of them to talk to the structural engineers. Well, so so where, is, where is there, though? You said go talk to people there. How do you know where there is? <laughs> Depends on the problem. Yeah. Right. So, so on a construction, you know, in the construction simulation, the there was construction sites. Right. Right. It was a place where that knowledge and experience resided and was manifested day to day. And when we went up to the Finger Lakes region, going up there and actually talking to people who lived in that region and who were specialists in the different areas, right? So we had the specialists in energy and in water and um, all of the other team that was participating. And so part of it is me listening to them and then traveling around and just talking to people at the gas station or, you know, stopping by and having dinner and chatting with the waitress, you know, being able to get their view and their um, knowledge and richness that informs the sense of what is the whole. The other thing that I see in you is that you've gone from thinking about the, the um, building itself and the people who are in the building to thinking about the building in its context, its water, you know, the things kind of that flow through it and the way it flows out. To the third venture is more like you won't start with the building anymore. In fact, Buildings are just one of the living dynamics. You now 
are seeing something as almost standing way up above it and looking at is a flow of energies that are all at work. And there's probably something in you that you would say has made that movement take place. And who knows where you're going next, but certainly this is a big difference from where you started with just the building and then even the building in its context and being known as a green build expert. What do you think it is that you, how could you describe what has led you through kind of that evolution of seeing those different systems and growing your, I don't know, I would say responsibility for them? In many ways, I think it taps into um, that first degree I had in anthropology as well as civil engineering, right? And, and so they were separate when I did my undergraduate degree. And over time, I've been able to actually bring them all closer together. You know, and thinking about, you know, um, my family would joke about old Roman ruins, but I loved old, um, older buildings, you know, um, ruins, you know, the old aqueducts and looking at them and saying, okay, how did they work and, and why are they falling apart now? What is it that has changed? You know, everything that's built falls down. You know, everything that grows dies. So it's, it's part of this whole process and there are, are things that fall down in a society and nobody ever bothers to replace them because you, you don't need the Colosseum. Yeah. <laughs> well, you need a different version of it, I guess. Um, but being able to recognize those patterns and then thinking about it from political science. You know, that was my master's degree with the civil engineering was also thinking about, because a lot of the stuff I did when I was working for the uh, engineering and economics firm after I got my bachelor's degree was working on transportation systems, particularly for minorities and for the really poor. And what we would often do is go in, there would be a lawsuit, and we would go in and we would actually interview people in those communities and document that it took them two and a half hours to get to work because they had to transfer buses so many times. Whereas people who were commuting um, for business had these express buses and it would take them 15 minutes. And it was clearly not fair. And so being able to, as I've gotten older, I guess all of the bits and part, pieces of me have actually started to come together more. It was interesting, my uncle just died recently. And so when I was talking to his uh, widow, I said, do you remember when, you know, you and Demi asked me this question? And she said, no. <laughs> I said, well, this is what you did to me. <laughs> and she was really touched. And what uh, is that? What did they do to you? What would you say the impact is and what you're working to do to make a difference? I mean, it's still underway. Oh, it's very much still underway. Um, you know, I think this issue of, of creating places of beauty that are shelters in all of the aspects, you know, for the soul as well for the body, is oh. is really what I see as, as being what I, um, I'm going to be focusing on. And that, I think, is, is pretty core to making things better. Wow, thank you, Sarah Slaughter. That was great. Thanks for joining us today and bringing all your wisdom and your advice to us. If you would like more of these kind of stories, please check them out on my website, carolsanford.com. You'll also find their access to the two books that I have written, The Responsible Business and The Responsible Entrepreneur. They can be bought through my website as well as many other free downloads. See you next time.